welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 3. Culture and Conflict. This lecture continues some discussion about drives, and as such, discussion about sex. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so what I've given you is the kind of blueprint, in a sense, that we come into the world with. It's, you know, it's, I hate to use computer metaphors, but it is like that, in a sense. It, it's kind of like, you know, the basic computer program. It hasn't really been, um, you know, rejigged to suit your particular needs or the particular context in which you're working. But this is more or less what we come into the world with. My shorthand way of saying it is we come into the world wired to survive. We're wired to survive, but it's got its limits, basically. Okay, now this is the kind of weird bit. So if it all goes woozy for you for a minute, don't worry, we will come back to this because this is a major, major assumption and you may not agree with it. Okay, when you are defining knowledge, knowledge isn't a thing, it's a relationship. If I know that I'm standing on this earth, that's a relationship between something within my body and a state of affairs in the external world. And that's knowledge. Okay, so that's knowing in a sense. And so the knower and the known, from this kind of perspective, have to be separate things. They can't blur and blend. So there has to be part of me that does the knowing and an external state of affairs that is the object that I know. And so what Freud says is we might think it's me, Doris, as a self and a whole ego that does the knowing, but he would say you're wrong. That what actually does the knowing is this little subpersonal engine, if you like. So it's actually part of me that perceives the world, not me as full person. So in other words, my hunger drive might be noticing who did get a cup of coffee, or my thirst drive might be who got the cup of coffee at her. And my sex drive might be going, who's cute, right? Everybody, right? In other words, um, there'll be bit my drives, she got the cup of coffee. There'll be my drives noticing all different bits of the environment. Now there'll be people who say, this is just horrifying. What a dismal picture of humanity. You're saying that it's not you as a person who knows anything that it's your drives that does the knowing? And Freud goes, yes, that's the picture. That's why we experience so much conflict, because one set of drives wants to reproduce the species. Another set of drives is trying to keep you alive as a human, and, you, and they clash. They want different things, and we experience conflict. And I think you all do know that we do experience conflict. Am I the only person who procrastinates? I want to write that essay. I want to finish that paper. But the garden, the garden needs digging. The fridge needs cleaning out. Anything except getting done to write my paper. All right. So in other words, when you know something, you can either know something that's a state of affairs and external reality, or you can know something that's true about your psychic reality. So, for instance, if I watch Terminator 1, and I experienced Terminator 1 with Schwarzenegger and that kind of steely kind of creature that comes out of the flames with red eyes as utterly terrifying, right? That's my psychic reality. 
My daughter can say, Mum, you're a wuss. It's not that frightening. That doesn't change my psychic reality because it's a relationship between me as knowing subject and the state of affairs in the world. And if Terminator 1 is utterly terrifying for me, no one can argue me out of it, in a sense, because it's my reality. So psychic reality is what's real for me. And in a sense, we all live in a world that is constructed by the history of our drives, the history of our emotions. Because when we perceive things in the world, or when we remember things in our psychic reality, we, we do so in a motivated way. We've got a whole set of little engines that need stuff, that need to find things in the world that satisfy. And so it's not just we're objective perceivers, you know, we're not objective, we're motivated perceivers, we're wanters. And we know stuff because we want stuff. And what we want makes us notice different things. So we're not detached observers of the world or of our own experience. And there's so much literature on this. Like most of my research projects are about this in one way or another. I'm really interested in the way that depression influences memory, for instance. Because in a depressed state, you remember the world and you imagine your future in very, very different ways because you're in a particular motivational state. Okay. But you can't think, okay, we come into the world, wired to survive, end of story. It's not like that. Because we depend on others. Why do we depend on others? Why do others have such power over us? Why does society have such power over us? Our parents. How on earth can our culture send us off to mucky trenches to get covered in lice and murder other people. How on earth can anything make us do that? It just seems insane if you just think about it. But the thing is that we are born into the world incredibly helpless. Sure, we've got this marvelous cortex, we've got this brain that's you know capable of amazing things, but the truth of it is we're motorically helpless at birth. We're useless. And so we have to attach to others. We have to find ways of um, making those others care for us and love us. Now we're capable of learning. The good thing is having a big experiencing brain that's about two-thirds of, or one-third of your body when you're born is a good thing because it means that we, we don't have to be hardwired to survive. We're wired to survive, but we've, we've got plasticity. Even our drives can be modified by learning and our affects can become emotions. So, you know, there's lots of plasticity in the system. Our drives aren't like the fixed action patterns of the stickleback fish or the grey leg goose. They're contingently modifiable. What contingency means, if I experience pain when I do this, then I will try to avoid it in the future. And there's limits to that, obviously, because sometimes we do repeat things that cause us pain. But drives are contingently modifiable. They learn, and they're modified as a result of affect-producing experiences, depending on what affect arises from our transactions with the world. And what's fascinating for us as humans is that our drives are not always linked to the external world. We can pacify them via the use of fantasy, and that's one of the I think possibly unique things about us, although it's so hard to know whether other creatures 
have fantasy. We certainly know they have dreams. Have you ever seen your dog running in its sleep? You know that there's dreaming going on there. Okay, so what's the significance of all of this? Why, why are drives important? I've tried to tell you what drives are, that they're kind of little motivational engines and they're knowers and they orient you to particular things in the environment relative to their satisfaction, relevant to their satisfaction. But the significance of having drives and affects in one's theory is that it anchors our psychology in the body. It means that we're, we're not saying mind stuff is different from body stuff, which is a form of dualism, mind and body seeming separate. What psychoanalysis is is a non-dualist theory. It assumes that there is a material basis for your mind. Your mind is made of physical stuff or arises from physical stuff. And so the you know, when philosophers talk about how do we make the mind-body leap, how do we cross the mind-body gap? Psychoanalysis would say, well, the mystery is that there is no leap, there's no gap. And Jonathan Lear, in probably one of the most beautiful books I've read, called Love and Its Place in Nature, he says the challenge is, how can we recognize the mental in something that seems so physical, like vomiting? Now, you look, obviously there are situations where it's just a physical thing that you're vomiting. Like if you've had half a bottle of straight vodka and you're 17... There's not much mental, believe me, going on, I would say, <laughs> right? But if you're an elite athlete and you're going out for a game and you are absolutely able to win this physically, but you know who you're up against and you're terrified of them because you think they know that your backhand's weak and they're going to be playing to that and things like that, you can be vomiting. And there's not much physical that's causing you vomit. It's your anxiety, your apprehension, your fear, whatever. In other words, vomiting can be incredibly mental. Okay. So there are big advantages to what I call, it's not my word, neoteny is actually from Weston Labar, who's one of my favorite psychoanalyst anthropologists. And what neoteny means is that we've got this discrepancy between what our brain can do and what our body can do. And that this confers us some advantages, plasticity, some disadvantages, dependency. We have to rely on others. We're wired for the average expectable environment, but it's, it's learning and experience that's going to attune us to the particular environment in which we find ourselves. And fortunately, some adaptions can be learned. But I just want to give you some stuff that I think is really fascinating. This was an article I was reading again yesterday Two weekends ago, I went down to Melbourne, and um, I met this guy, Jim Hopkins, again. I just think he's amazing. He's a, he's a psychoanalyst, and he's a philosopher, and he's completely obsessed by neuroscience and neuroscientific evidence, and he's got all this new approach to um, the Bayesian brain that's just coming out. Um, and he gave this wonderful talk, and I discovered his paper again, which I'll put online for you. It's a really beautiful one. It's called... Um, the Darwin and Freud, uh, Conscience and Conflict. And it's all about how our capacity for morality is also what makes us so aggressive as a species. Isn't that dismal? It's our capacity to have a conscience that makes us so aggressive as, pe as people. So this is the kind of story that he gives of us. And I'm just going to pan back now. He says, because we're born 
you know, requiring protection. We attach to others. We don't have to stand alone. But the odd thing is, it's not like we just open our eyes at birth and see mum and think, oh, I've got a mother and it's me standing in relation to a single mother. We actually, he thinks, and many people think, don't really see the other person as a single other. It's like, oh, here's a nice, warm, cuddly person. Oh, there's a person who arrived too late to give me my food. Or, and, oh, here's a person who's ignoring me because they're looking at something else and their face is not contingently responding to my goo gagas, right? So initially, the notion is that you don't synthesize those. You don't think those are the same people. And the evidence for this is, weirdly enough, if you put little babies... You strap them up, they look like Kermit the Frog, and there's all these screens there, and you put three mothers on the screen. Up to four months of age, great, three mothers, don't care at all, right? Five months of age, um, there's more than one mother, this is not good, okay? <laughs> you know, really want it to stop now kind of thing. Something has happened. In other words, there's a realization that actually this person is a unified other, this is what um, Jim Hopkins is saying. And it's not surprising that it's around that time you develop stranger anxiety. Okay, you develop object permanence, you realize this is one and the same mother and she's mine. Okay, but oh, that one's not her, that's somebody else. And they're there to be feared and afraid. So at the very moment that you realize that all of these different mothers is one, and that she's unique and irreplaceable and I really want her and don't let her leave me, the stranger becomes a source of fear. So prior to that, there could have been the satisfying mother, the mother who arrives too late, or the mother with the impassive face who ignores us because she's reading the newspaper. Then you realize that she's unitary, and this requires uh, something that I don't think we ever really solve in the course of our life. And that is the problem of ambivalence. How do you cope with the fact that we love and hate people? What do we do with that as humans? Because, you know, if you think about it, just the sheer fact that someone becomes unique and irreplaceable, I am suddenly really, really vulnerable. Because if they leave me, I won't be able to find another one because there's no one like them. So as soon as you really start to love someone and they become the only thing that you want in the world, there's a little bit of hate, Freud says, because now they've got real power over you because they could leave you. And so he says love and hate is always a bit of a mixture, whether or not we realize that. And so one of the easiest things to do is to imagine that this person, just to idealize that person, they're wholly good. They'd never do anything bad. And the little bit of hate that you've got, you put it somewhere else, okay? You project it onto someone else. And, and what um, Hopkins is saying is that at the moment that you get object permanency towards the mother, see her as unitary, realize, uh-oh, the mother that was the one that was watching, you know, arriving too late or reading the newspaper is the same mother that I love. I've got to do something to defend against the realization that I both love and hate. And so the hate gets projected outwards onto the stranger. Now what um, Hopkins says is that this is what happens with in-group, out-group 
dis differences. So social psychology can take you so far on this. It can say, here are the forces that create a group. Here's an in-group. Here are the forces that create an out-group. But psychoanalysis adds a little something to that. It says, look, you're not just drawn to a group because you share and are linked by certain beliefs and desires and shared values. You are also linked because you oppose certain other groups. You are distinct from other groups. And if you, you see it in sport all the time, the rabbitos versus the, I don't know enough about sport to know who the other team is, <laughs> you know, the other one. Okay. Um, and, be, and the violence that can arise from that, as you've probably seen in many, many cultures, don't score an own goal in some cultures. Do you know, you'll die and literally will die. So sport... You know, it's not just a game. It's really got all these feelings. Where do they come from? How are they channeled? How intense can they be? And anybody who's really smart, like a charismatic leader like Hitler, if he wants to unite you and link you, then all of the bad things that have gone on have to be projected outwards onto a scapegoat, preferably a highly visible one, and preferably one that's not that powerful who can fight back. Okay. And Festinger did this in the 1950s. He found that you could really get rid of rivalries in boys' camps if you united them against a common goal. You know, we've got to move all these boulders and create a cave or something like that. But also, if you could unite them against a common foe. And sometimes you'll notice in sci-fi movies, the only way that humanity ever feels like it's unified and together is if the aliens are invading. Then suddenly we look like we're on the same side because, you know, there's these aliens coming in to, to get us. So he says, a striking feature of human life is the division that we impose on our psychological worlds and our social worlds between a self or us, which we regard favorably, and another or them, which we take as correspondingly bad. And it's kind of like we really make ourselves seem better than we are because we dump all our rubbish onto the outgroup. We project it onto them psychologically. You know when I said flight is to no avail? You can't run away from your affects. So if you've got love and hate, you can't run away from those. So what do you do? You do a sneaky little projection. Yeah, but that's not really my hate. They're just bad. <laughs> I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Problem solved. I don't think so. <laughs> You've just made the world darker. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in-group, out-group distinctions, they arise because we've got affective mechanisms that make us fit in with the group. You think about it. There's really good developmental stuff, which I might also put online. You're going to probably want to stop me putting stuff online soon. <laughs> um, you know, about the, the way that girls really dominate other girls around 8, 9, 10, 11 with the fear of gossip, you know, that sort of interpersonal aggression of spreading rumours and things like that. Boys just punch each other, yeah? Girls, no. <laughs> it's a different sort of social kind of aggression in a sense. And fortunately, we grow out of it a bit. But it, because, you know, there's such a taboo against physical aggression if you're a little girl, the aggression comes out in other ways. So... We have these affective mechanisms. We really want to belong to the group. We would be really ashamed if people spread rumors about us or make us seem unworthy objects of belonging or desire or love. So shame is a big one because shame says, I've got this view of myself and this is who I think I am. Uh-oh, but the messages I'm getting from the group, they don't think that's who I am. 
my image of myself is not fitting in with, with what the group wants me to be. So I better change so that I can fly in loose formation with the group because I'll get picked off by a predator if I don't, or I'll just feel absolutely miserable if I don't. So shame is a big one. You don't want to be shamed. You don't want to be different. And you see that when people are just so incredibly careful not to stand out in undesirable ways. Guilt, you need a morality for, the superego, but that ends up being a mechanism. I haven't told you the story of guilt yet, so forget that for the moment. But we're also quite willing to be punished if we do something wrong. We apologize to the group. We admit our shame. Um, we, we say sorry sometimes. Okay. But we can also project outwards onto others all the negative qualities or the aspects of ourselves that cause us conflict. In a study that everybody loves to cite, so I'm sorry, you've probably heard of it about six times already in your psychology career, but everybody loves this one. Men who are homophobic, who really you know, have quite negative views of homosexual guys, um, if you show them homoerotic material and you're measuring various blood volumes in various places, you discover that actually they get more erections watching homoerotic materials than guys that are not so anti-homosexuality. But they, if you get them to self-report, did you get aroused? No. Okay. No way. So they, they, at a bodily level, they're being more affected but they're denying that they're affected, and they're the ones who are have got the dimmest view of homosexuality culturally. They're projecting what they see as bad onto others, and they're saying it's that oh, I don't desire guys. You know, it's dissociating from themselves. So projection, in a sense, is where you project something you don't like about yourself out onto others, and then you try to control those others by destroying them, or getting rid of them, or wiping them out, genocide, or attacking them, or shaming them, or whatever. So identification with the group creates a really cohesive, tight in-group. But projection of the dark sides of yourselves out onto an out-group also creates a cohesive in-group. So the very mechanisms that make you conscientious, moral, shame, guilt, etc., towards the in-group can actually make you quite devastating towards people that you see as the out-group. So that's why later on when I'm talking about charisma, I want you to remember this, because the mark of a really good charismatic leader, not a dark charismatic leader, is someone who's inclusive, who is prepared to allow anyone to belong to their vision of the future. Beware of a charismatic leader who, who's going to really advantage their followers at the expense of somebody else, because that's usually not a good sign, and, and you will hopefully understand that very deeply by the end of the course. So you find group phenomena like queer bashing or the organized murder of, of gays by Nazis. And Freud says, you know, every time two families become connected by marriage, each family thinks they're better or superior in birth than the other family. So there's that kind of, you know, rivaling, I'm better than you. Okay, so we learn, we learn from those that we depend on. And being dependent on others gives those others power over us. And if we lose those, the love of those others, we, we die. I'm actually realizing just how literally true that is at the moment because one of my doctoral students has got access to a big series of uh, court transcriptions of uh, rulings and decisions that the court has made in certain cases of criminal neglect and things. And because we're coding them and I'm having to read them in great detail, I'm just realizing how devastating it is when 
a, a mother or father doesn't love their offspring, what they are capable of doing to the child. It's just beyond imagination. So it's vitally important that you retain the love of those powerful others. Otherwise, things can go very badly for you. Okay, so animal urges. The full complement of drives includes the ability to murder, to eat other humans, to have incest, and to have a full array of polymorphously perverse sexual tendencies. So necessarily, when we want to fit in with the collective, we experience conflict. Because you're not going to be all that welcome in a group if occasionally you eat one of your own kind or you sleep with your kin. You know, it's like I wouldn't want to go to Antarctica with someone who had that repertoire of possibilities. It would scare me slightly. So initially, the conflict is behavioral. This is a kind of developmental trend within psychoanalysis. Initially, the conflict is behavioral, with parents having to prevent babies from biting or pulling out hair. But quite quickly, one internalizes the rules and principles, and, because there's not always someone there saying, don't do this. So it makes economic sense societally if we can build the rules into you so that you feel bad in the privacy of your own home if you do something that the social collective would rather that you didn't do. And one of my favourite pieces of graffiti in the, in the 80s in Newtown was do the police a favour and beat yourself up. But in a sense, that's what psychoanalysis suggests your superego does. In the absence of anyone to provide behavioural sanctions, you are quite capable of giving yourself a very painful, hard time. You can become a source of enormous suffering, basically. And if you've experienced that kind of psychic pain or that mental pain, you know what it feels like. You do anything to get rid of it, and we do. We have defense mechanisms, mechanisms we self-medicate in all sorts of ways. So once you've acquired a superego around four or five, it's not merely actions that bring you into conflict, even impulses and thoughts. It's a very Catholic worldview that even thinking about it can cause pain, even though you've done nothing at all that's wrong. Now, our parents are only representatives of the collective moral order. The particular superego that you've got is your own superego. There will be particular things that come from what really mattered to your parents. So strangely enough, in my family, you weren't allowed to crunch potato chips loudly. You know, that was kind of total taboo. And so I get quite nervous if people are joyously crunching potato chips. I'm like, oh, you know, when is the sky going to fall? Okay, now that's a really zany example, a true example. In other words, lots of taboos come only from your, my Nazi family, okay? But there's going to be something unique about your family experience. We all derive quite unique moralities, even though broadly we tend not to murder our own kind and we tend not to eat them, yeah? But unique taboos are familiarly and individually specific. And so what what's really interesting about that is that once you've got a morality, these cultural meanings and beliefs can actually shape not only the attitude that you take to your body and its urges, but how much you can experience of your body and its urges. And this is the weird thing. And this is where desire starts to come into the picture. Okay, so you're born with drive 
But what you come to desire is more culturally constituted, and your experience of desire is far more culturally constituted. So you might see as bad things that were just bad in your time in history. And the example that I really love, which is a contemporary example, is in America, if you have an affair and people find out about it, people cry impeachment. In France, if the president has an affair and people find out about it, they're told, mind your own business. <laughs> it's like, it's his, his private life. What's that got to do with him as a politician? Okay, big cultural differences about what aspects of your character um, dictate whether or not you can be a good or a bad president. So in other words, these sort of cultural taboos that aren't really about stopping you from eating or sleeping with people um, are things that target behaviours that might not really damage collective life. Okay? Does it really matter if you're not polite? Okay? Does it really matter if you have uh, fantasies that are not productive? Um, you know, no. There was one example about two years ago that a guy brought up in one of my tutorials about, this is a very zany example, this poor fellow in the south of England who liked to wrap himself up in cow manure and they imprisoned him. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's weird. It's probably not that great for him. I don't know. I wouldn't comment. But it's kind of, is it criminal? I don't I think it'd be much, having worked in prisons, I think it'd be much worse to put him in prison than to, you know, perhaps tolerate this slightly zany local behaviour. Okay, so there are some things that are taboo that can really damage us, make us less creative, less able to fulfil our promise, less able to contribute to culture. And so surplus repression is, is stuff that targets historical taboos that are not really relevant for collective life. So they're sort of historical taboos that aren't really relevant for contemporary collective life and that actually are damaging of your creativity. If not being able to sort of um, roll around in cow manure or something on that guy's part means that he never develops this unique installation art that he might have if he'd been left to himself and instead becomes a gibbering wreck, you've suddenly got someone in the mental health service that would otherwise have been a somewhat zany creative artist. Okay. In other words, the cost to culture is, even the cost, you know, economically, is, is high. But to the person, it's extremely high. Okay, so, and this is Adam Phillips uh, writing about Donald Winnicott, and we're going to talk about Winnicott in our lecture on object relations theory. They sort of say that artists have to be a bit ruthless. They have to kind of ignore some of the sort of taboos and concerns that are part of surplus repression. They can not understand them, or they can even despise them. And in a sense, this is the kind of heart of a, a kind of an artistic freedom that psychoanalysis suggests we need to contemplate if we want to be able to fulfill our own promise. That we need to be prepared to be somewhat deviant, not in the sense of to murder and rape, etc., but that if we can tolerate not kowtowing to surplus repression, it will be in our own interest. We will be more healthy if we can be less good in that regard. So our actions and impulses and thoughts are not simply things that connect us to the external world. Um, they also are things that uh, 
connect to the inner world. And we don't just come to know things cognitively about the external world, we also judge that knowing process. It's very difficult not to have um, an attitude about what you know about the world, to think it's good or bad, or to think it should be allowed to exist or it shouldn't be allowed to exist. And it's the same about our inner world, which is why mindfulness is such a huge thing at the moment. Because when we attend to processes arising within ourselves, it's hard just to let it be as a neutral thing. It's, it's much more likely that we're judging it in some way. Oh, that's irrelevant. What am I thinking about that for? Oh, that's pathetic. Oh, God, I'm such a terrible person. Okay, now that changes the texture of what it's like to be you. That sort of sense of the inner world. So Adam Phillips says we don't suffer from, from our instincts. We suffer from the attitudes that we take towards our instincts. And what psychoanalysis suggests is we're creatures who end up really defending against some of our thoughts and some of our impulses because it, it takes a lot of courage and guts to keep in mind a thought that reflects very badly upon you. Like, if you can remember something that you did, you know, two weeks ago that was shocking and you feel really terrible about it, that's impressive because it's much more likely that we go, well, they were asking for it. Um, you know, I've had difficulties with that relationship for a long time anyway. That was why I was so rude to them. Do you know? You know, in other words, you soften the edges of it. You tell a story that makes your action not seem quite so bad anymore. In other words, you have all sorts of defense, defense mechanisms so that you aren't in the moral wrong to the same degree. It's very difficult to keep a thought in mind that causes shame or guilt. And Forenzi's got a very cool but very difficult little paper on that. If you're interested, I can put it online. So Drew Weston says, just as selection pressures naturally select for organisms in the world, so he suggests our emotional responses in our minds naturally select for the behaviours and the mental processes that are pleasurable to us and select against those that are aversive. So that's quite a quite an interesting thing to say. You can probably think of a few counterexamples of that. So do we have unitary motivation? No, we have many drives. And yet some kind of synthesis is possible via the ego. And the, the ego is a real can of worms in psychoanalysis because it's got all sorts of different functions. It's got an executive function. Freud suggests that it's what makes us do things in relation to reality. But also, it's kind of the site of inhibition for him. If approaching an object would cost us our lives, in real terms or in moral terms, the ego will prevent motor discharge. It will prevent you from expressing those impulses or acting on it. The other thing that's, that's quite interesting about the ego is we can do something and the ego will go, yes, but I wasn't myself that day. Okay, in other words, they, the ego can disown an action and fail to connect it to oneself. So yes, I did it, but I wasn't myself that day, yeah? which is what psychopaths do par extraordinaire. It's like they, there's no unitary self in psychopathically constructed persons. They've got nested sense of selves and they can flip between them depending on what they need to achieve.
And, you know, there is this illusion that we would like to believe that what we can introspect on and know about ourselves is all there is to us. But psychoanalysis says no way. There's all these unconscious desires and processes that are operative. And yes, they're not easy for us to accept, but they're absolutely there. But psychoanalysis says introspection's always partial because recognizing our own mental processes is blocked by so many different kinds of inhibiting circumstances. It's not just morality. It's not just, you know, our moral standards. There's all sorts of other things that can prevent us from knowing what's going on within us. And the first ones, the earliest ones, are shame and disgust. Because it's kind of like the water of libido has been flowing, I want this, this is yummy. Disgust and shame go, no way, no way, stop, stop right now. This is before you've even got a full conscience or a morality. You've, you've got shame and disgust, which are innate, remember, with uh, Sylvan Tompkins? They're there right from the start. And so when Freud talks in his paper, The Instincts and Their Vicissitudes, which you read in Tudes, I think, um, the vicissitudes are when your drive has been pressing for expression, but it's had to divert its course and change the manner of expression. And that's been required in some way. So if you're going, yum, 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 I want more. Oh, they're looking at me like I'm really disgusting. I won't eat more. Shame is turning the expression of your hunger drive around. Okay. So the vicissitudes are changes in the way that you express your impulses. You might have to disguise forbidden love or disguise hatred or disguise hunger. They make us civilize these affective dams, but holding back our drives has its costs. Because you think a drive is, is wired to make us do things. To hold it back, something's going to have a good, strong, countervailing energy to hold it back. Okay, and so once you're in a state like that, how much energy have you got to go forward in life? It starts to get diminished because you're conflicted against yourself. So truly to be able to get your own projects up and running is going to be harder work for you. It's particularly difficult if we masquerade as an ideal cultural subject. Like if we really pretend that we're not ambivalent, um, that we're not animals at all. You know, I've only got a quest for meaning. There's nothing about me, you know, that's there, that's just brute and embodied and animalistic. I don't feel jealousy. Um, I don't feel rivalry. You know, if you have this vision of yourself as the lotus that doesn't have its roots in the mud, yeah, then life's going to be really tough for you because it's going to be a lot of your inner life that you're going to have to be uh, estranging yourself from fairly constantly. And those defense mechanisms are part of repression, and repression is costly. But discerning? is one of those defenses that is a very, very common one. You just don't acknowledge that desire or thought as being your own. You don't link it up in your memory system. You know, you just don't tell a narrative about yourself. You don't bother to really get a story going, to have a unified sense of self. You can project those thoughts and impulses out onto others, or you can blur self and others if it's in your interests. I don't have a ute, my friend's got a ute, I can use his or hers, right? Because it's in my interests to blur self and other. We're such good mates, I can borrow it any time, right? That's the kind of blurring, however minor. Now, psychic reality is what's real to the individual that's different from what's actual. And you can escape from that 
into fantasy or into reality. Workaholics are people that are escaping from their psychic reality by numbing their minds through overwork and exhaustion. They're trying not to know that something's wrong. They might think there's something wrong with their marriage, okay? But they don't want to look at it. So they just burden themselves with lots and lots of work. So they can't think about it. So a crucial feature, and this links into the essay question that I'm going to set um, about fulfilling one's promise. A crucial feature of truly being able to fulfill one's promise in life is being able to own and to value one's own psychic reality. If you're someone who gets angry, that's okay. You're actually just someone who gets angry. It doesn't mean we're going to leave you up for the predators. Okay? But the crucial thing, and, and it's the hallmark of great artists, is that their, their reality testing is intact. They know that others don't see the world their way. They know that they've got a unique perspective on life. And they know that their psychic reality doesn't coincide with external reality. So there's no psychosis. They haven't built a mansion in the air and moved into it. They've built a mansion in the air and they know that it's a mansion in the air. But failing to take ownership of one's inner experience can lead to all sorts of things. You can hurt others, you can act out, but perhaps the most common one and the one that we least recognize is the manic defense. And that is you just don't take responsibility for your instinctual experiences. You don't see them as part of yourself. And so writer's block can sometimes arise because you're actually feeling quite furious about a whole system of thought, but the aggression of that is a bit threatening to you. And you don't want to put that down in words, and so you don't write. So in other words, there's, there's some sort of aggression, even in fantasy, that can be threatening to people. The famous composer Mahler could never eat whole fish because he couldn't bear to take things apart with his fork and knife. Okay, so there was so much of a taboo against aggression that it, only fish fillets, thank you very much. Okay. So owning one's inner life, and I mean this quite sincerely, is a developmental achievement, and many of us never got there, and I include myself in this. Because optimally, you've got to have a dawning experience of being a very specific person, and your particularity the particular things that you're good at and bad at, is rooted in your body. And that body has had a long inchoate history. And by inchoate, I mean a history that's outside of language and may still be outside of language for you. Do you think that means it's not operative? <laughs> I don't think so. It's still having an effect whether you can know it and name it or not. But part of what elaborating the sentiment of who you happen to be is that dawning awareness, that dawning experience, and a kind of comfort, a valuing of who you are. So for psychoanalysis, and this adverts to your question earlier in the lecture, you know, do you get rid of polymorphous perversity? No, it's not an overcoming of earlier stages, but it's an inclusive combination of the earlier stages. Everything comes along for the ride, but you find better ways of doing things. So you don't rely on crying to get your own way. You find different ways of getting your own way. So the fate of our instinctual drives means that sometimes this dawning experience never arises because our early socialization can make certain things impossible for us and other things 
just so unpleasurable that it's not worth it. So we think, I don't want to know about it, basically. <laughs> okay? But if, if our mothers, say, have, have never been able to reflect back our pleasure in play, we may not really have pleasure in play. We may give up play. Okay? And we don't even know that we've just given up being a playful person and just reality-oriented. Okay? So... There are two senses of the word affect that I need to disambiguate for you because you're going to be reading Freud a lot recently or in the near future. Um, he talks about the affective charge of the drive and he means the impetus by that, how much go juice is involved in the drive. And then there's the other sense of the term affect, which is the sense I've been using it in today and the sense in which I will continue to use it, which is separate neuropsychological patterns of activation that are more or less hardwired into us from birth. And they are individuated at the level of the body. There's something that it is bodily like to experience shame or disgust. It's discrete. They're different from each other at the level of the body from the start of life, is the way that I'm using. So the interesting thing about affects is that they get wakened up. You know, like you might feel really bored, but then if something really amazing or strange went past, your affects would get would get kick-started. And the terrible thing about that is you can think that you're managing to repress something, that you've managed not to feel jealousy or rivalry, for instance, and then something happens in the world and, oh, you're back there again. Okay. So I've already covered for you the fact that affects function as a sort of proto-morality. In other words, they function as a morality before you've really got a superego. And that's another important role for them. Oops. Now, what's interesting to me, and possibly to you, is where does anxiety fit in all of this? I'm going to be telling you heaps more about anxiety in the course, but the discrete affects are more like drives, I think, than they are like cognition. But anxiety might be the exception, because whether or not I feel anxiety depends so much on how I appraise something that I think anxiety is really tightly linked in to cognition. But of that, more later. Now, I think I've got one more minute. I'll see if I can cover this slide in one minute. Oh, yeah. And then this is the end of the lecture. So, realistic anxiety. That's um, a, a trapdoor spider. If it bites me, I'll die. I'm afraid of it. That's a realistic anxiety. Okay. Um, that's a tarantula. It's an object of fear. And if, I, if it bites me, I'll die. Wrong. <laughs> it's harmless. But I might die of anxiety and fear. True. Yeah. So neurotic anxiety is where the object of fear is remaining unconscious. And you can only come to know that you're afraid of something through a process of distortion. You think you're afraid of the object of fear, but it's not true. And moral anxiety is when you've done something that transgresses your conscience. Okay, so I'll finish off the next bit of the lecture next week. Thank you so much for your attention and see you. That was the third lecture in the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie-Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm -hmm.